Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. What's what's fucking up? Look, I okay. We're fucking up. This is the third time we're trying this. Um and you know what? The first time I'd opened it by saying the fuck word really quickly. And I was thinking as we were getting ready to uh for we had some technical difficulties and we yep. were going again. That's and I was me. like, I'm not gonna say a fuck word again. But then I couldn't think of anything else and I just said a fuck word. And that was a choice that I don't regret. That's fair. I mean, basically, there's like we get one free fuck, and after that, we get taxed on it. And uh, I mean, we're doing, we're going strongly. I well, d- I mean, I'll I'll say a few fucks. I'll I'll take it out of my pocket money. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yes. Yes, Tully. The fuck tax tax exists, and it's not something that I made up to extort money out of you. It's it's good to know you're being honest with me. Thank you. Yeah. yeah cool. I, I I really appreciate that you're not uh, sort of taking advantage of me in any, in any way because uh, I really I appreciate the fuck tax and, and cool. everything it stands for. Yeah, yeah, well, it's important for the management of our society. Yeah, well, the fuck tax um, actually directly feeds into the first home buyers grant and that's actually how Lachlan and I get to buy our first home. Oh, yeah. excellent. Yeah, excellent. That's, how, that's how they fund that, that yeah. scheme. I mean, yeah. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate good management of, yeah. of the, the fuck funds. Yeah, so when Lachlan says your fuck tax money bought us a home, it's because of the way that the government runs it and not yeah. for any other reasons. Like, don't get your wires crossed. Yeah. And speaking of uh, running things in a way the government... <laughs> better in a way the government could never hope to do. Uh, we would like to, at the top of the episode, um, acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. This is the Mianjin land of the Turrbal and Yagara people. Uh, sovereignty was never ceded. These lands have always been a place of storytelling and teaching. And we hope to continue in that tradition as much as we can today. Uh, and we'd like to pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging. Um, if you'd like to be part of the conversation, hit us up. Well, we got the socials. They're in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> this week, we're doing something a little bit different. Um, we were talking behind the scenes, and we realized that sometimes we try to come up with episodes, and we try to split them up, up amongst ourselves to have, like, the three different things that we talk about and the, like, research questions that we're trying to address. And it can be difficult to split them Mm. a lot of the time you'll find that even if something is interesting and even if it has like a lot of depth and history to it it doesn't always have a lot of facets to it yeah um and so this episode actually kind of i stumbled into uh so because we were talking about in situations like that we should have one person just do the research sometimes. Exactly. If it seemed appropriate for the topic, then that would be fine. And that way we could all focus on things that we were specifically interested in and stuff. Um, And I was looking into some aspects of, like, political history, uh, trying to find some topics that... Because that's my my area, as I'm sure people know, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while. If you've listened to an episode, you'll uh, (laughs) you'll be familiar with this. If you've listened to my voice at all in your life, ever, under any circumstance, you'll know that this is the only thing I ever think about or care about. Um, and so I was looking into some political history to f- try and find some things. And, and everything, like, in the context of the world at the moment was a big bummer. Mm. Um, peek behind the curtain. We are recording this uh, on the 7th of July, 2020. Um, so uh, currently we're only really kind of easing out of uh, our, like, distancing restrictions here. Uh, protests are really picking up in earnest in our part of the world in a way that they weren't towards the beginning of, like, the... Uh, like initial rioting and stuff around the Black Lives Matter movement in the US mm. and stuff. Mm. So things were getting like especially heated in terms of politics uh, as I was researching this episode. Yeah. And I was thinking about it. I was like, well, what a, what parts of it keep me going? Because this is something that I care about. What parts of it like get me excited? And I was thinking about like the imagery and stuff and like the symbols and things that like, that regardless of your kind of political affiliations, you have some version of to kind of rally around. Like the, uh, like, 
like nations obviously have their like national anthems and then activist groups will have like protest songs as an equivalent. Mm. Um, most activist groups have like flags and stuff like that of their own and stuff. And I was thinking about it and I was like, why the fuck do we just all have these weird symbols? Because as much as all the symbols are different in their actual construction, the form of symbol is the same pretty much universally. We all use flags and we all use like national anthems. We all use like the same sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and well, to clarify up top, I'm going to talk mostly about flags in this episode. Most of what I say, though, can be transposed pretty neatly onto things like national anthems and stuff. Other mm. national symbols. Okay. Um, all of them kind of come about in the same sort of way. Uh, and do the same sorts of things. National anthems are obviously more for uh, more designed for an audience than a flag maybe is because it's like kind of broadcasting a very deliberate message to the world. Yeah. Um, But even then, like whether it is an internal message to your people or an external message to the outside world uh, varies in the same way that like flags do. Because sometimes flags are for battle and sometimes flags are for hanging in your city squares, you know? Yeah. Um, so j- just know that if I forget to clarify that, that most of this, that this applies to other things, it does also apply to other things. Yeah. Um, so obviously the origins of flags, uh, I mean, f- we've been using flags for and similar kind of symbols for forever. Um, heraldry is is the term for just kind of like the design of these symbols. Um, also known as armory, if you uh, go back far enough, because it would be on like armor and shields and stuff. Mm. Um, they're kind of like the same sort of field. And the idea is that according to heraldry, different symbols mean different things. Different like flags and stuff will mean different things to different people. Um, and heraldry is kind of the understanding of like how the designs work to create these meanings. So uh, the earliest uses of things that could be considered heraldry in some sense um, stretch back to ancient Egypt. Um, where there are some early representations of pharaohs and stuff, and uh, of of specific people, uh, and sometimes their like their palace or their lands or whatever, but usually at this time centered on a person more than anything, a- and it would just be like some symbolic representation of that person that was clearly designed to mean that person. Uh, so uh, the one of the early examples was um, there are some images in ancient Egyptian art of people holding standards, which is essentially just anything flag-like or symbol-like that you kind of have in the end of like a big pole that okay. you hold up for, this, for people to see. Oh, uh, yeah. So what I'm imagining is the, the Ankh that you see on top of like staffs and stuff regularly. Uh, or sometimes they'll have animal symbols. Yeah, but yeah, the, the animal symbols uh, especially. Um, okay. Anything that is like at the end of like a long thing that's like this is my symbol. This represents. Um, right. In the early ages, it was usually just a person, so um, it would be like st- uh, standards that had an image of, for instance, a falcon, which represented the god Horus, and the one of the pharaohs was considered to be literally the earthly incarnation of this god. And so the standard with a falcon on top of it just represented the pharaoh. Okay. So when you would see someone marching with that thing, with that falcon symbol... They were on behalf of the pharaoh. Yeah. They were holding the symbol of the pharaoh. And they were representing the pharaoh. Hmm. So that's where this comes from. That's the original idea, is is taking... Symbols that can represent powerful people. Um, there are some some similar things in Mesopotamia around the same period. Um, the Book of Numbers in the Bible talks about the standards and ensigns of the children of Israel. Um, the Greeks had obvi- had symbols and stuff that would symbolize certain people and certain heroes and things like. That's really where it comes from in antiquity. Hmm. Um. See, I, I never would have thought 
because so much so much technology has come from Egypt and the Middle East and through like China and sort of Northern Asia. But I never would have thought when you said flags, never mm. would have thought that that sort of originates back to ancient Egypt specifically. Oh yeah, no, you can draw a direct line from modern flags to like ancient totemic symbols. Um, and in mm. fact, uh, most of my information has come from a handful of articles. I have an article called The Nature of Flag Power, How Flags Entail Dominance, Subordination, and Social Solidarity by Robert Schanefeld. Mm. Um, and that kind of gets into like the social meaning of them. I have one that gets into a, like pretty clearly into the development of the symbols. It's called Symbols in the World System, National Anthems and Flags by Karen A. Cerullo. Um, and I have one about some Arthurian legends called The Rise of Sir Gareth and the Her- Hermeneutics of Heraldry by Kenneth J. Tiller. Um, I'm just going to plug them up top because they're very good articles. Mm. Um, and it's where the bulk of my information, my other research is really just fleshing out what these articles said. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, point being, uh, in The Nature of Flag Power, they talk a lot about... Uh, Emile Durkheim, who had a very influential early text on how symbols and stuff worked and how they developed through history. Um, and he he draws a direct line from, like, totems, uh, the idea of just, like, some collective spiritual symbol mm. uh, develops really directly into the modern national flag. Yeah. Um, so there's, cause th- th- there's, a, there's a few things that make the link really clear. So first of all, they're all simple objects. So wh- whether you're talking about a totem pole, uh, which is like carved, di- which would be like a, literally a pole of wood carved with like depictions of various like animals and creatures and spiritual things. Yeah, I'm picturing uh, Native American. Yeah, that yeah. sort of idea. Um, those exist in pretty much every culture. The idea of this like collective spiritual symbol. Um, they are designed, people think, to promote ideas of like social solidarity. I mean, that's also quite... It's, it's interesting to think of that because a lot of the the rest of the world has been very intermixed and various cultures have influenced each other. If you look uh, at Indigenous Australia, where there is a series of nations all across Australia, but they didn't really have any links to the world at large until, essentially until colonisation. They also have, as individual nations, um, their own totems. Like, they have a specific... Uh, flora and fauna that they are custodians of mm-hmm. and so that is totemic to them it is they are um, i wish that i'd prepared a little bit for this because like there's some really interesting information i highly recommend you looking into it yeah it was um, usually it was like some kind of group symbol um that would be carved onto the australian indigenous communities would often carve them into things like wooden boards they'd be on poles they'd mm. be on like um so they would be like stone carvings um yeah and, and I think that's that's the thing that's important to note about these like early totem things is while they still work in the same way, a lot of them aren't flags. Yeah, in the actual sense, um, and even like totems don't off don't always look like the totem pole that you imagine when you think of a totem. Mm. Um, it is just like some symbolic object with a some depiction of something on it that represents the group. Yeah, um, and so this combination of um like the sigil of a like the standard of a ruler kind of bleeds into this old idea of like totemic objects as the symbol as like the focus of like group rituals um because both will both have some kind of ritual that has some kind of that is designed to inspire like awe and, like, respect and stuff beyond what the object itself would be considered otherwise capable of. Mm. So, like, a piece of fabric flapping in the wind, just like a piece of stone without anything on either of them, would adjust that. A piece of stone and a piece of fabric flapping in the wind. 
Mm. You put something on it that symbolizes like the group as a collective and you start centering rituals around it and all of a sudden it becomes... Uh, it, it becomes so powerful that even small pieces of these totems could become just as spiritually powerful as the whole thing. Um, hmm. uh, for example, um, and this is kind of a, a, a darker instance of it, but um, the it's a it's a tendency that is capitalized on a lot by like regressive regimes like fascists and stuff. Um, the Nazis, for instance, had a had what they called the blood flag, which was literally when they were originally still like a fascist, like militant movement rather than like an established political party. Yeah. Uh, during one of their, I mean, terrorist attacks. Let's be real. Mm. Um, a handful of early Nazi members were killed, and one of them bled on one of the flags and it looked exactly the same as like the nazi flag that you're imagining the like red with the swastika in the middle in the white circle Mm. um but because it had as they talked about it like the blood of martyrs on it uh, i'm using the the fucking massive air quotes here yeah um all three of us are currently doing air quotes just (laughs) to show yeah how lachlan's told me this story and i was literally just like are you kidding me yeah real and you idiots it's yeah but it really speaks to like the transferent power of these symbols because what they would do with that flag is whenever a new person would later on, especially after they'd like really taken power, whenever a new person would get like uh, inducted into like the ranks, there would be this ceremony where Hitler would take the blood flag and rub it on the um on the flag that the that they'd brought with them or on a flag that they gave to them. I can't remember. Jesus. I can't remember whether you had to bring your own flag, um, but regardless, that would then consecrate it. And so, even, and this is important because I'm sorry to get. I'm I'm gonna have to get a little into the weeds with it, but I think it's important because it, it's important to understand why this is significant for flags. Because and also it's relevant just in general life now. Apparently, yeah. So. <laughs> some stranger on the street asks if you if they can rub their flag on yours you say no and you go home yeah uh, and, and yeah that's that's the sort of power that like just a part of these things should have to the point where like a organization like the Nazi party mm-hmm. which uh, Hitler had made massive steps to ensure had uh, lost a lot of its like weird occultism um, yeah. he tried to completely purge that from the party even he was engaging in these like pseudo spiritual rituals consecrating flags because uh the way fascism works uh and this will tie into flags i promise the way fascism works is it is it is best described as palingenetic ultranationalism which essentially means palingenetic is the idea of rebirth okay it's the idea that you uh you're alive now and you will be born again into something greater it's essentially like you'll be born into your actual destiny. So this is this is what I'm reading from this is this is a way to encourage people to become martyrs for a cause. Yes. So because what they do then is to create the like genuine kind of revolutionary sentiment, and I don't mean revolutionary in the sen- in any good sense, but it is still, I think, wrong to say that it that like fascists aren't trying to revolutionize their societies they're just trying to revolutionize it in the worst fucking most monstrous possible way um the way that you're able to create the like the passion and the fear within your community to do that is by adopting these symbols you have to use the symbols of the culture that it comes from there's a reason that uh Trump goes around talking about ha- how he'll make America great again in s- and talking about like the beauty of the pledge of allegiance and the national anthem and the and the American flag instead of goose stepping because that's not something that's culturally significant to Americans that doesn't feel like America being born again to fulfill its destiny that feels like someone just changing things and doing their own regime if but if you can treat it as like reforming the culture and reviving the culture then all that takes 
is just adopting these symbols. And that, and that really is how powerful these symbols are. The, this flag that had existed at this point for like some 20 years and was used literally by uh, fascist terrorists became this like holy symbol essentially just because of the importance of collective totems. So, and sorry to take this on an incredibly depressing note. I mean, I just talked about Hitler for, f- for 10 minutes in my episode that I intentionally decided wasn't going to be about dark politics. So, um, just when we're talking about these totems, these flags as what they are, um, just ascribing that same significance to the red Make America Great Again hat. Mm-hmm. Um, I've just sort of... These guys just watched me for the past four minutes with my head in my hands mm. as Lachlan talked about things that are just, again, just happening now. Because, I mean, let me let me ask you this, Tully. What kind of hat is is the MAGA hat? Uh, that's a, a snapback. It's a... Baseball a baseball cap. cap. Yeah. And what's America's favourite pastime? That'd be baseball. There's a reason they pick the things they pick. They're culturally significant. Oh. And that's why flags are consistent across all of these movements, because flags are always significant. There was, there was also a recent controversy about on one of those stores selling uh, baseballs. They were like black baseballs with red stitching. Um, and there was a controversy about it because there was a bunch of um, mm, like Nazi dog whistles on this uh, Donald Trump merch store, and mm-hmm. people were like, "Does he know? Does yes. He, does is he aware of this? Because He's aware of this. It's and if th- not, if not him, then his media manager. But like, I definitely mean some, him. Somebody along the line is aware of what's being put through. I am. He knows the message that they're putting out. He yeah. might not be in tune enough to the rhetoric to know how to deliver that message. Someone else is probably crafting that message for him with the right dog whistles. But he's telling them to dog whistle. Yeah. Um. It's also if you are listening to this and you it doesn't quite align with your politics. Um, sorry for the harsh wake up call and deliberately calling out your favorite leaders, but also please do continue listening to exactly what is going on and be aware of this stuff because it is incredibly easy to have this influence you without knowing. Mm. And it if you understand what's going on and why these things affect people the way they do. It can be a way to see what is aligning with your politics and what is aligning with what what is essentially a dog whistle. Yeah, and, and know that also that I'm not talking out of my ass here. That this is like this is my field. Yeah, uh, I do fascist studies. That's what I do. Yeah, um, my honors thesis is on the manipulation of cultural uh, of like cultural circumstances by fascists to gain power. Yeah, and like it's no secret the. Th- like this podcast has always been hard left politics, <laughs> but if you are somehow in cons- like a con- conservative of conservative views and listen to this podcast, I implore you please not to stop listening because of this. In fact, I would say listen harder. And I think it's yeah because I think it's important to talk about these things because I don't think there's obviously a line where this is no longer true. But as a rule, I don't think there is anything necessarily wrong with someone who has been taken in by this. Yeah. Because it is relying on these symbols. It is relying on this, like, on this cultural background. And it is relying on so many, like, latent ideas that are fed to you through your culture. I mean, uh, like, the rise of fascism came right around the height of eugenics as just, like, a scientific belief. People just thought eugenics was right for yeah. a while. Um, the same as, like, the current things that are happening um like the reason that there's so much like overt nazism i would say in american uh, conservatism conservatism is literally just because nazis became a big part of american conservative culture after the world war ii because of uh, like operation paperclip and things like that where yeah. they took so many of those mm. uh, of the like nazi officials into the united states and let them be a big part of the institutions yeah and it did influence the culture and, and I mean, Nazism, America almost fell to Nazism in the 30s anyway. So, yeah. like, it's it's there. There's a reason that these things are a part of it now. And there's no sort of, there's no coincidence that the symbolism behind the red pill sort of mm. men's rights activist movements um, have that same visual, uh, almost totemic symbol mm-hmm. that comes from a pop 
pop culture icon that has been misinterpreted, by the way, um, greatly. Mm. Um, and this this whole red pill, it's the same target audience for the the red marga cap. It's the same target audience for your black and red baseballs. Yeah, it's exactly the same thing. It's taking something that a group can identify with and manipulating the the way that people identify with it. Um, and it's it only works because these things, these flags and things like that, are like universal. Mm. They're important to everyone, so mm. anyone can manipulate them. Um, that yeah, that's a good point. That's a bit of a tangent, but that is that is that is an important point, I think. Um, yeah, essentially, these things are treated like they're living, breathing creatures. Uh, I, I mean, you you look at the way that any country talks about the way that you have to care for their flag and you'll see that it's clearly being treated as more than just a piece of fabric. Mm. Um, it becomes like symbolic of the collective presence of the entire society to, to, to steal, to steal uh, an, uh, a phrasing from this article. Um, here, let me read this. Indeed, yeah. the totemic object is invested with such transcendent qualities that it comes to stand for all individuals and their values. It becomes what is impossible to literally behold, the collective presence of all society and its collective consciousness. As Durkheim puts it, by expressing the social unit tangibly, such objects make the unit itself more tangible to all. So, the idea being that it's difficult to reconcile the disparate interests that it requires to have a big collective group. Uh, historically, it seems that we have lived in egalitarian societies, but it took some fucking work. Yeah. We do have, we do have like, dominance stuff built into the way that we view the world. Mm. Uh, provably. It's a descendant from the way uh, primate social structures work. Um and we have to really work against those things. And so symbols like this give a really good opportunity to not only symbolize whatever leader you're trying to rally behind, but also symbolize the collective unity of the group. And so you can look at something and be like, I'm not just fighting for this random idea or this random group of people that I don't really know very well mm. because I only know a handful of them. Because you only know a handful of people. Mm. Uh, everyone around you is, is usually just kind of the people around you, except for the handful of people that you're close to. Yeah. Um, and so to get people to be able to like rally around these things and fight for these causes that, that might not be in their best interests, you have to have something that they can be like, we're not fighting for each other and some disparate ideas. We're fighting for this flag. So that's like where the idea comes from. Uh, and you can see it in, it's a development from, like I was saying, from like primate social things because primates will still engage in very much the same way as like soldiers on the front line of a war. Primates will engage in like collective intimidation of an enemy, mm. uh, but it's difficult to know for primates whether they're doing that because of the rush of confronting an enemy or because they're doing it based on some like collective consciousness. Yeah, flags and related symbols literally are just a guarantee that we're doing it for the collective. It is just if we keep a flag up the entire time we fight, it shows that the flag is what we care most about, yeah. not our fighting. It gives everyone a clear indication of like, this is what this is all about. This is why we're all here. And this shows that we're still doing it. So mm. there are some uh, clear characteristics to flags that, that justify this position. Mm. Um, and they are probably as straightforward as you'd expect. Uh, Tully, what do you think is the most important factor in the way that we look? Think about a flag. Yep. Imagine a flag like flying over a battlefield. Yeah. What about that flag makes it a symbol of power? Well, I would say it's it's being recognizable. Being recognizable? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, like, you know what group it belongs to. Mm hmm. Yep. Um, so then it would be simplicity, probably. Yeah. W what would you say, Grace? Did you have any other ideas? Uh, oh yeah, you've got a design background. You could actually probably <laughs> yeah, from speak yeah. from a period piece <laughs> of authority. I have a design background and I cheated Lachlan talked to me about this yesterday. <laughs> um, I was going to say just like being seen, like the simplicity of it, but also like being big enough. And I mean, they flew multiple flags sometimes. Having having it 
as visible as possible so that in these large battles, anyone, including your enemy, could see it. Mm. And those are literally exactly the reason. A plus telly. It is as simple as that. It is just a way to guarantee on the battlefield, first of all, that people know who you are. That's important. If you're going into war, you want the people that you're fighting against to know who what you're doing because why you're fighting. That's going to be pretty important to the outcome of the war. Wouldn't it be funny if you just rocked up the battle one day and you put a different flag on the other guys? Were like, uh, I guess we're doing them now. I had something booked with France, but I'll do. I'll fight Belgium, I guess. That I mean, that was that, that was definitely a pirate tactic. Yes, actually, um, it was too. Wasn't it? Yeah, I forgot about that. I'll, I'll, I'll get to that. So. Originally, the like when we're talking about like uh, medieval heraldry, mm. um, it, it was kind of around the Middle Ages, the the mid to late Middle Ages that that we really developed th- ideas about like kind of universal symbolism among these things. Mm. Um, so originally, it really was just something that you could identify with whoever it was for. Um, it was tall because it would be at the end of a at the end of a very long. Uh, flag staff. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be big, it would be distinct, and it would flap in the wind. And it would move really quickly as it flaps in the wind. And that just like incredibly tall, dynamic, and like bold symbol in the air is all it was. I hadn't even thought about the movement of the flag as such an important thing. But yeah, that's that is it's part a of the key to it being eye catching. Big I part of it. It de- it ne- it is always identifiable, no matter how you look at it. But even so, it's never still. Interesting to think of. I think it's the Nepalese flag uh, when thinking about that with the two triangles. Well, the Nepalese flag is actually, uh, interestingly, the only flag that didn't modernize its shape from medieval heraldry. Mm. That was the one of the uh, common flag shapes for uh, medieval standards. Um, and the Nepalese flag just never, never became the rectangle. The rectangle came about in the kind of height of uh, like the British Navy and the um, uh, the British and the Spanish navies and stuff mm. because uh, the rectangular flag worked best to hang from the masts of ships, which was really important when you have a bunch of random fucking ships sailing around in the ocean. You need to know whether or not the people on that ship want to kill you. Yeah, that's probably important. And so it was illegal to use the wrong flag, but it was a thing that pirates did because uh, it was a way to uh, convince other ships that you were um, chill. That you, you were chill. chill. Until um, they got too close and then you raised your own flag. Pirates. And were like, ha ha, fuck you. Pirates would also, um, if I recall correctly, and I believe I do, uh, a common tactic was to uh, put like a Mayday flag up in mm. and put, or like put a Mayday flag up with a national flag or hang a national flag at half mast so it looks like it's like a distress call or something mm. and then after they got too close to get away is when you'd like raise your jolly roger or whatever it is that your ship actually has and you'd be like fuck you pranked it, it's just like a fake distress call because it was a legal requirement on the seas to if you saw someone that you weren't like an enemy with needed help and their flag clearly showed that they needed help. You helped them. You legally had to go and help them under international law. I love the idea of the like the like parliament passing the law about you have to <laughs> you have to have the right flag up and that like having a fake flag is illegal and all the pirates are like, oh, oh I gotta stop now. Yeah, nuts. Um, I actually just as a, a bit of a side note, um, talking about these flags is instantly recognizable and like that's the most important thing is they know who they're fighting. Mm. When you're becoming a known pirate, how do you start introducing your flag? Like, oh, I think you just got to start flying. You just got to start flying it, and then send enough survivors away so that they can describe your flag. Is that it, or do you send out literature? What the fuck? Hand out pamphlets at the local dock. Yeah, I think it ended up mostly just being word of mouth um, because the flags were, again, by pirates designed not to be necessarily identifiable symbols for other people. Like, you weren't supposed to be able to necessarily look at uh, Blackbeard's flag and know instantly just by looking at the design, this is Blackbeard's flag. Mm. But so could they be more for their own sake? Well, it's... Rallying behind this one flag? It's twofold because... It, yes, it is 
it does have the same like power of being like this is a collective symbol. This it's easier for us to all rally around this flag than to rally around the man Blackbeard who's off doing a work right now. Hmm. Um, but it's also just like it's not about people knowing who you are so much as being consistent in your representation to people when you do see them. You don't have to know that they know what your flag means. They, You just have to know that if they ever see your flag, they know what's coming. Hmm. They know what's, they know who's holding it. Yeah. Um, and, and some people say that, uh, that a big part of it is also just because like, when you're standing up and you're standing like tall and firm, you like feel stronger. And when you're like lying down, you don't feel as physically strong. So that's probably like part of the association. Hmm. Um, and also the fact that like uh, chimpanzees as part of their uh, intimidation will like raise their arms in the air and wave them around. I mean, it, it's part of a lot of animal intimidation is, yeah. is make yourself look big. Yeah. It's the, just that idea of like being upright, being big is kind of like a, a sturdier and more intimidating thing to hmm. creatures in general. Um, but the interesting thing about flags as well, and I think that this is important, is they work for your enemy as just as good of a symbol. As it, something to rally against? Yeah, just as much as seeing an army with 10 flags straight 90 degrees vertically in the sky, flapping in the wind, is a terrifying sight seeing coming over a hill. Uh, if you beat an army and you strap all their flags to the back of your horses drag them through the mud in the th- in the streets hollering and cheering That's that is an that is one hell of a symbol to your people that you fucking won because mm. then you don't even need to rely on the fact that your people understand what flags mean that doesn't matter they saw the flags hanging up there and now, now they're they see seeing the you drag them through the street and they're like oh shit that was clearly their symbol, and now it's fucking ours. Mm. So it like it, it is immediately like a humiliation thing. Um, so it really does directly come from that like very kind of uh, primate like idea of like dominance and submission. Because uh, you see like similar similar actions when like a chi- if a chimpanzee sees another chimpanzee being dominant and thinks, "Oh shit, that's a chimpanzee that could beat me up," they like kneel before them. Mm. Um, they'll like run from hundreds of meters away to kneel before them just in case they notice that they weren't kneeling and go to fight them. On the other hand, it is an opportunity for someone who doesn't agree with their position of power to come and be like, fuck you, I'm actually going to fight you. And so you get to either take it as a symbol of intimidation or break down their symbol of dominance by like, taking down their flag or physically beating them, depending on whether you're a person or a chimpanzee, <laughs> um, as a way of proving, no, fuck you, I'm the dominant one. Hmm. So, it, so, it, so it has that, like, twofold um, thing to it. And you, and you can see that kind of everywhere. Um, it's, there's some really interesting stories, actually, in this article um, on the nature of flag power that talking about, like, just how dedicated some people in history have been to flags. For instance, um, there is a story from uh, Muhammad as uh, shortly before he took, uh, before he captured the city of Mecca, Um, as Muhammad is trying to like take back the world in the name of God. Yeah. Um, And so he would have, uh, uh, according to the story, uh, leading into one battle, uh, Muhammad had uh, two people that were like, there was like the person that would hold his flag and the backup person. Um, and realizing that it was going to be like an especially brutal battle, Muhammad sat down with them and was like, okay, well, we need to, we need to get a third person just in case something happens to you guys mm. uh, because we can't let our flag fall. Uh, this was such a cultural thing to the point where uh, early Chinese military tactics were in a, were largely look to see how their flags are looking. If their flags aren't up straight, if they're drooping, if they're like clearly not focused on keeping that flag up, then that means that army has more important things to worry about, which means they're on the back foot. So is this this Sun Tzu? Because that sounds like Sun Tzu. It is. I mean, he literally wrote the book on Chinese military tactics. So like, probably. But I have a... Oh, just because I have... 
Um, it doesn't actually say. It doesn't say specifically who hmm. it was. Um, but here, I'll read, I'll read you. There's a quote here from a, uh, a, a military commander around the era. I don't think they were actually... A Ch- oh, that's the problem. They weren't actually a Chinese military commander, but it was around the ah. era. It was... Uh, the Chinese generals were the first people to kind of get that idea, but the idea of, like, if you're too distracted or too disorganized to keep your flags steady and solid um, became, like, completely common. Yeah. Uh, became, like, common battleground knowledge to the point where people would, at, at a certain point, decapitate you if you didn't hold the flag up straight. Jeez. Because it was so dangerous. Because if someone saw your flag was faltering, they would fucking charge you. Because d- they'd be like, you you don't have your shit under control. I do wonder if that's ever been used then as a... And here's... Okay, back to role-playing games. Here is a potential tactic that you could use. Use it essentially as a false flag, if you will. Um, basically just fly it badly so that an enemy force charges and you can lead them into an ambush. And it would work. He, here's a quote from, from a, uh, an ancient military commander. Um, oh, no, it, it, was a, it, was a, it was an ancient Chinese military commander. Um, said, quote, With our spirit at the highest pitch, we fell on them with their spirit exhausted, and so we conquered them. I looked at the traces of their wheels and found them all confused. I looked after their flags, and they were drooping. Then... I gave the order to pursue them. Then, after the wagons were disorganized, after the flags were drooping. And it was just a sign that, yeah, they had other shit to do. They weren't paying attention to the flag, which means they're distracted, they're overwhelmed, and something someone could easily take them. The same as a boxer looks for an opening, a drooping flag is an opening for a military commander. That's important to know. Yeah. The other thing is... It's also important to, to yeah uh, to, to get back to Muhammad. Um, they were, uh, according to the traditions, uh, as reported by Al Tabari, before this battle, I'm quoting here. Before this battle, Muhammad had given three of his top flag-bearing commanders orders on how to handle the line of succession should the first two be killed. As it happened, these two men did indeed fall. Uh, the, the, yeah. As it happened, these two men did indeed fall in battle as the prophet had feared, but when the third was also killed, there was some confusion. He'd only ever had two before, and this was the third person that he specifically brought in because of his fear that they would be killed. Uh, and, and this, I think, is just important because it speaks to how true that thing about like drooping flags was. Mm. They were so desperate to keep their flags upright. Um, according to Altabari, the first commander, Zaid, quote, fought with the banner of the messenger of God until he perished among the enemy's javelins. Then the second man in line, Jafar, took up the banner and fought with it. When the fighting forced him into difficulties from which he could not extricate himself, he leapt from his sorrel mare, hamstrung it, and fought the enemy until he was killed. At this point, the third man in succession, Abdullah, rode on horseback and took up and advanced the banner, although he had to fight against his fear to do so. As he took up his sword and advanced, however, he too was killed. Now, no longer with orders from Muhammad about what to do, there was some momentary disorder among the others. Yet commands were ultimately not necessary, since before long a brave volunteer took up the banner and led the fight with it. This he did until the battle was finished and there was a mutual withdrawal of forces. So this is a random soldier, saw three people be killed, actively targeted and killed just to get Muhammad's flag to fall. And he's still it's still so important to the cause, you lose the battle if your flag falls. Mm. There were uh, some people genuinely believed like that was the sign that you'd lost was when your flag fell. And I mean, uh, again, I'm going to bring this back to to tabletop. If you are running a battle rather than necessarily a you know a, a fight as you would you know with your thing, if you're running a larger scale battle, it's not feasible to have the battle be done when everyone's killed off. So what if your victory condition is make the flag fall? There is a reason that when you look at like depictions of old-timey war tables, the things that they move around aren't armies. They are commanders, flags, and siege weaponry because those are the things that military mm. commanders in a feudal era thought were important to a battle. Who gives a shit about your serfs dying? If your flag stays tall and your commanders get through, you won the war. Mm. You just did. And you can see in... Um, 
way, 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 way back. Even going back to the point where like flags were s- flags as themselves were so new that uh, there was a Chinese prince who just had a white flag, literally just a white flag, and that was his flag. Like that's how little pe- flags were being used. That that still wasn't taken. Mm. Um, and they would just hang them off of the walls of cities that they conquered. And it would immediately, obviously, be a sign that, shit, someone else owns this. This isn't ours. Because, and I'm editorialising a bit here, you've got to remember that that is such a defined, like, we are here and we're in charge to have a flag flying, that you've got to remember that the people seeing a flag coming at them are thinking, oh, shit, they are in charge. They're flying their flag, and they, they were over there this whole time flied their flag over there the whole time, nobody stopped them. Mm. Fuck, mm. they are in charge. Yeah. On the other side of this battle line, they're the ones that are the boss because nobody's making them take their flag down. Like, yeah. that's the that's the mentality that we're talking about here. Um, I, uh, the, the final example that I'll talk about is um, there was, towards the end of the American Civil War, uh, a Confederate general was talking about how, like, so many of his men were killed. So many of his men were killed. He had 11 people in his color guard, which was the group dedicated to, uh, in old battles, to making sure that your standards were, like, flying properly and stuff. Yep. He had 11 people in his color guard uh, and 80 people in his, like, troop, other than them. Mm. 40 of the 80 were killed. 10 of the 11 in the color guard were killed. Oof. And he took that as an accomplishment that 10 were shot down and, and my colors pierced by nine balls passed through four hands without touching the ground. So even as whole, whole as, as, as all of his flag bearers are killed and his flags are shot to shit, still people are handing them amongst themselves as they fall. Wild. Uh, it's ridiculous. And and that is true for pretty much anyone that's ever fought with a flag. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I really do think that flags are probably the best way to chart big battles in D&D, based on this. Because yeah. those are, they're, they're impossible to keep track of. Um, and if you can just keep track of the progress of commanders and flags and, like, weaponry, then that's all you need. If you can get a flag into a city, the city is yours. Yeah. I'm going to be real with you guys. If I get shot holding the Australian flag, that is the first thing to fall. <laughs> Honestly. Uh, I mean, it is also uh, a flag that is famously been used to oppress indigenous groups. Yeah. I, and well, like that's th- there is a reason that there is an aboriginal flag. There yeah. is a reason that yeah. despite the fact that there are mm. hundreds of indigenous Australian nations that they unify under one flag. Mm. There is, they are, and you ask, ask anybody. They are individual nations. Yeah, like the as we said in the acknowledgement, Brisbane itself is home to the Turrbal and Yagara people. I come from the Sunshine Coast, which is the Gubby Gubby people. Mm-hmm. Um, up there, in, uh, yeah, I mean it's. Townsville has, uh, up in North Queensland, has a good few tribes. Mm. It's been a long time since I've lived there, so I don't remember the names of them. Um, but there are, like, when you do, like, an acknowledgement of country up there, it's, like, three different uh, nations that you're talking about. There's a reason yeah. that we call them the First Nations people. Yeah, um, but there's a reason that they have an individual flag that they fly as as the Australian Aboriginal flag. Because if you have collective identity, flag is th- a flag is the best way to, to symbolise that. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's it's ridiculous. Like, just how universal this is. Um, in terms of design, there are a couple of major influences that I just want to... How, how, what time are we at? Uh, we're at 49 minutes. Cool. In terms of design, there are a couple of major influences that I want to quickly talk about because I think the symbol of symbolism of them and their use in battle is the most important, but I think it's interesting... And probably worthwhile, especially for people who are, like, trying to design their own flags and their own symbols and stuff. Um, mm. There are a few, like, major influences that that I think it's worth noting. Uh, the first is heraldic tinctures, which is essentially just, like, the dyes that you would give, that you would dye things with in, like, the medieval and middle ages. 
Um, you can see a lot of the development of like the specific meanings behind them comes about in like the Middle Ages, around the time that like the Arthurian canon was kind of being established and stuff. Because that was that it was through those stories that a lot of this um, was really kind of ironed out. Um, because the colours in Middle Age heraldry correspond to like chivalric values and stuff. Um, I did not know that. Yeah, so uh, according to medieval heraldry, uh, heraldic like uh, handbooks, uh, there are two tones, it, just in general, uh, white and black. White is like, uh, like purity and innocence, and black is like, uh, like surety and constancy and kind of like, mm. uh. Yeah, uh, uh, white was considered to be like the greater tone or whatever, um, but they were still like they were used. Uh, they were all used by everyone for for whatever you needed. Um, hmm. So and every color from there was considered some com- was con- considered to be some combination of white and black. So like um, red, for instance, was the perfect equilibrium between white and black, which is uh. why uh, when you which is why red is associated with a lot of the um, a lot of the more kind of uh, the more militant aspects of chivalry. The thing that takes it from just being a social code into being like a code for knights. Um, the yeah. like uh, like the kind of like anger and indignance and indignance and strength and stuff uh, was like associated with the color red. Green, on the other hand, was like life and lust and nature and things. Um, blue was what was blue? I can't remember what blue was actually. Blue normally has associations with like water and the qualities thereof. Usually, it's um, you know, karma or at least a, a patience. Oh, it's yeah, it's like loyalty and chastity and stuff. The very like, the most like kind of abstract of the of mm. the like chivalric values yeah so um yeah like uh, blue was blue would be associated with things like like loyalty and chastity and stuff um and one of the big one of the like the major sources that are used for this was an explanation of the tale of sir gareth in Arthurian legend because sir gareth goes up against a series of single colored like monochromatic knights uh, ah, the first they... knight that he faces is the Black Knight, which then gives, which is, and they're all, they all embody the, like chivalric values, but kind of to like a different extent and with different like kind of spins on them. So like the Black Knight, for instance, comes and he is like, he doesn't want to fight Gareth because he thinks that Gareth is lowborn, which is like a thing that knights were supposed to do. Yeah. He talks to them in the way that knights are supposed to talk and everything. But it seems like he's doing it just for the sake of tradition, just because it's like a constant thing in his life. This is what you do. Mm. And so that's how uh, this uh, uh, academic says that this knight then embodies like the idea of that like constancy that was associated with black. Mm. Um, and then, kind of on the flip side, so Gareth takes his armor and becomes the new Black Knight, and it's kind of like his introduction by going with like the lowest value color in the heraldic spectrum, and by going with the one that like most represented like constants throughout time. It was like an interesting kind of twist on like, well, now he's the Black Knight and he's going to be the Black Knight kind of forever, but he's also like overthrowing the Black Knight. It's like a whole thing. Yeah. So it was like very intertwined with those like. Uh, chivalric values. Uh, the Green Knight shows up uh, with uh, two women that arm him that are all like sexy and trying to kind of seduce and like m- like make the n- the knight so Gareth kind of like just kind of like, trying to throw him off, mm. um, like jeering at him and stuff, uh, which is like again associated with that kind of like idea of like fertility and nature and lust and stuff that kind of came and that like very maiden folk very maiden focused very woman focused idea of knighthood mm. um that, that was a big part of the culture i rock up to very my french i rock up to my battle and i have two uh, two of my my hot wives hand me my swords and they say fuck you piss boy you're gonna lose 
That's the dream. That's the dream. That's the dream. This is why people get into LARPing, so they can live out this exact scenario. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting looking at how like the different colours play into various values. Yeah, the the blue knight shows up and is like very regal and very like and is the most like uh, composed of the lot. The red knight is the one that's like the angriest and the most militant and has like animal imagery instead of vegetable imagery and stuff. It's like very clearly these had associations. They had very clear meanings. And on the flip mm. side, when he comes across like the brown knight, which isn't in the spectrum of like chivalrous colours, um, he gets the same spiel at the beginning, like, don't fight this guy, he's too scary, he's gonna hurt you, you're gonna fuck up, and then he goes and he beats him immediately. Mm. Because his conduct isn't actually befitting of a knight, and it gets him killed. Uh, uh. So, in the same sense, like, breaks from the colour spectrum were associated with unchivalrous conduct. Um, and so that's kind of where a lot of the symbolism of the colours came from. Actually seeing people wearing a single colour uh, was very rare, so it's which is what makes it seem like this is clearly trying to be, like, symbolism. Um, and it's interesting because some people have said that stories like this probably m- maybe weren't influenced by these, like, heraldic manuals because there's no clear evidence that they're, like, they're not referencing heraldic manuals mm. in their work. But the fact that it maps so one-to-one means that, like, it was probably just, like, culturally known that yeah. these colours mean these things. Or at least it was the idea around the Middle Ages was developing, because before then it was kind of arbitrary, I'll yeah. admit. I mean, but around the Middle Ages, like these things were really consecrated. I mean, to be fair, even now, even if we're not matching them with ideas of chivalry, that colour theory still stands up. If we were doing like character design and you were like, yeah, this character is a blue knight, I feel like a lot of people would be able to be like, okay, well, he's blue, so here are his qualities. And that really does directly come from Mm. Middle Ages heraldic manuals. Um, And they just became such an ingrained part of the culture because, like, knightly conduct was such a big part of uh, European culture around the Middle Ages that it just kind of became known. It was just, like, how Mm. these colours were used. Um, beyond that, beyond the like meanings of the colors, the really the main other influence seems to be statistically, uh, if you're talking about like the world systems model of looking at the world, the idea that like every country kind of influences each other and they're all at like different levels of influence in that system. Um, the more, the more powerful the country is, the simpler their symbols are going to be. Because that means that the institutions likely have enough influence and enough stability that they get to kind of set their own messaging. They get to say, we're established enough and we're powerful enough and we're centralised enough. Um, A big part of it is also how centralised the government's control is over their territory. Um, If you're... So if you're like a more powerful nation with with more centralised control over your territory, Mm. you're just going to have a very simple symbol. Take a, take a look at something like um, the, I mean, the English flag, or take a look at like the flag of China or the Soviet Union or whatever. Mm. Uh, very basic symbols, and then you look at something a little bit more complicated, like say the South African flag that yeah. was made after apartheid, that was d- that was very intentionally designed to represent many, many, many people and many people's interests to really show like a break from this like single like agenda setting regime that was that existed in apartheid well i'm looking at some of these flags here um things like uh bosnia and herzegovina it's very clear divides between blue and yellow uh antigua and Bar- uh, barbuda um there's like again clear divides in it um whereas yeah when you've got simple nations that have got a unified history it seems to be a lot more simple a lot more like block colors and like these sections. Yeah. Um and those those like more like powerful and and when I say powerful again I I'm, I'm not going to keep clarifying this but I do mean in the world system sense which is just like a sociological thing and it's if you want to look into it look into it. But um these more powerful nations uh are less likely to use like clashing primary colors. They're less likely to use overly complicated imagery. They're less likely to put writing on their flags. And similarly, they're less likely to have more complicated national anthems. It's essentially the difference is everyone's trying to make symbols the same way, but 
if you are a powerful nation, if you're setting the agenda, and a lot of the uh, nations that are more powerful in the world system are like the colonial nations as well, who did kind of get to set everyone's agenda for a very long time. Um, they got to... There is less need among uh, nations that are more in more central to the world system mm. to have to kind of prove their point. They don't need to make their argument to anyone. Everyone knows what they're doing. Everyone knows what they're here for because they did it to everyone. They don't need to write something on a flag to make it clear what their things are. They get to just say, these are the values of our people. On the other hand, if you have less centralized control, if you're more kind of periphery to the world system or whatever, then you have to, or maybe you want to even, just as a contrast to, uh, some people say it's, it is a more a response to, mm. um, you'll have more complicated things, partly to represent more disparate groups. Um, so like the flag of South Africa, for example, is intentionally designed to have colors and sections that represent like all the different groups uh, in a way that obviously like the apartheid regime absolutely did not. Um, it is very direct response to a an imposition of like national solidarity mm. um, as opposed to like the flag of um, some of a more central nation just kind of gets to yeah. am I making sense? Yeah, no, it's making sense. Point being, point being, uh, you, the more complicated the flag is, likely the more on the periphery of whatever like overarching political structure has been set up. Mm. Um, so emerging groups, uh, subjugated uh, groups, people like that are going to push typically to have their message be heard through their symbols. Whereas more central nations, more core nations to the world system are going to just be able to assert their nationhood through their symbols. Mm. I mean... It's not about the country, it's about... It's not about the people, rather, it's about the country at that point. Like, the American National Anthem is not about the people singing it. Uh, Whereas, like, the symbols that would be used in a country post-Civil War would be trying to represent the opinions and the values of all the different groups that were still there. Yeah, I mean, a perfect example of the simplicity, I guess, is the English national anthem. God exactly. Save the Queen. Exactly. And it uses it uses much of the same notes as uh, many other more complicated national anthems, but because of the history of England, they didn't need to do anything more complicated than yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all very simple intervallically. Uh, if for those of you who haven't, uh, who don't know Studied me, I'm a music, music yeah. professionally. I'm a everyone. I'm, yeah, Cully. music is my thing. Um, but like, if you listen to the phrases, da 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 da, all very close together. Da 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 da. Same theme flipped. Da 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 da. Again, that first one just simplified. Actually, this is what I was trying to hit on before. Yeah. Thank you. The, it, it's easier to talk about it in the context of national anthems. That national anthem has the has very much the same steps and the same points that it ha- beats that it has to hit as pretty much any other national anthem mm. but the english have the luxury of taking the easiest way there yeah if you aren't a core nation you don't have that or maybe you don't want that either way if you hear if you heard the uh if you heard the national anthem of a nation more on the periphery it would be the same notes, but they would take like a more convoluted way to get between them. It wouldn't be just like half step, step, half step, step, like we're just going to follow the progression of chords. It would have to be more complicated. And uh, if you, for those of you who know a little bit more about uh, music theory, if you listen to the chord progressions, it's all very simple. They don't need anything complex whatsoever. It's one, four, five. That's it. Da, 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 da. That's the core four notes. Jealous. For the I had whole thing. Here we go. I'm Here's jealous. I had to learn the Australian anthem on my recorder once. And it was really difficult. All these little British kids got it easy. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And also, it all, so just to interrupt a little bit more, it all centers around the tonic. It's all, this is the core of the key, and we stick there pretty much constantly. If we're not there, we're returning to it. Yeah, I... Yeah, let, let, can I, I'll, I'll finish it here on this little passage that I yep. think sums it up better than I could. Uh... So it, this splits it into 
basic and embellished syntax. So like a duh, 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 duh is a very basic syntax, whereas mm. something that was like, I don't know, something that, uh, a more complicated uh, melody would be embellished syntax. Yeah, which you can hear is not very embellished, but is clearly more embellished than the syntax of the British one. Mm. Um, so it says, uh, basic and embellished syntaxes represent two different communication strategies. Some argue that when dealing with national symbols, basic syntax represents normative communication, that which is dictated by societal convention, or sociocultural convention, rather. Embellished syntax, on the other hand, represents a distortion of the normative. Such syntactic distortion is often a useful communication technique for capturing audience attention. With this in mind, the findings with regard to world system location that core nations have simpler syntax and periphery has more embellished, and this was consistent across the board. Um, Modernization didn't affect it. Uh, The regression of the regime didn't affect it. Mm. Like, factoring out everything, the only two influencing things are world system position and control of your territory. Yeah. Um, those are the only things that's that that clearly track to, at least based on this admittedly pr- preliminary study, Yeah. Uh, track with flags and shit. Yeah. Um, with this in mind, the finding with regard to world system location carries some interesting implications. When we review the flags and anthems of, with the earliest adoption dates, we find that most display a basic syntax. In addition, most were adopted by core nations. This suggests that the normative format of anthems and flags was developed in the core of the world system. In a sense, then, these symbols establish basic syntax as the convention for their respective genres. Leaders outside the core of the world system must project their national symbols into a previously formatted symbolic area, uh, arena. rather. If it is true that embellished syntax gains audience attention by distorting the normative, these leaders may be choosing such a syntax in order to gain maximum attention for their new and important message. For such leaders, embellished syntax represents a more jarring and more demanding communication strategy. I love that. So, really, that there and the heraldic colors are pretty, and just like the general idea that we need these symbols to kind of help unify groups are the only things that go into flags. It's just those three things. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's more to it, but, there's, there's but as a rule, those core. are like that. That's really where a lot of at least the flags that we know of and stuff have come from. Yeah. That's, it's I don't know. It's interesting. Um, wonderful. Look. That is that has been our first solo episode. Um, I personally really enjoyed that. I thought that was a, a great way to look at flags because it got we got a nice unifying theme throughout the whole thing. A deep dive, deep dive. Yeah, a deep dive, deep dive. He's um, hoping we can edit it into something listenable. Yeah, I um, look. Let us know what you think um, of the edited product. Uh, inevitably, um, give us uh, give us a shout out on our socials at Dungeon Deep Dive on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or. Give us, shoot us an email at deepdivetnc at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to hear what you think. Uh, if you've got something that you'd like to say, please feel free to write in. Uh, we want to hear from you. Yeah. And with that, fucking... Good night. S- s- see ya. See, see you on the, on the flippity-flop. Am I right? It's like 1.30. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.